0: Welcome, welcome. Everybody say it with me, everybody say, there's a scarecrow in your melon patch. Yeah, that was a little ghetto, wasn't it? in your melon patch. I don't think that's how the prophet Jeremiah said it, but in Jeremiah chapter 10, he is preaching to a the people of God have fallen away from everything they knew to be true and everything they knew they ought to be doing and they have just fallen away and so Jeremiah gets up and starts to challenge and starts to rebuke and starts to just plead with the people because he even goes on to tell them, look, as long as you continue in your wicked ways, judgment will come and it's all because you've you've fallen after or followed after these idols. And he goes, let me describe, in Jeremiah chapter, and he goes, let me describe to you what these idols are like. He said, people have to go out into the woods. They have to chop down trees, take them to a craftsman. They then adorn them with silver and gold. And then after that, they have to prop them up because your idols are like a scarecrow in a melon patch. And if you haven't been here over the last few weeks, this is the final part of a four-part series that we've been in as we've looked at how you and I, we don't have idols in the in the traditional sense. We don't have statues and totem poles and things and, and little trinkets and we, we we don't we don't do all that. Most of us are, 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 are a little more sophisticated than that. We look at the way that they worship the sun god, and we figured out that's not what that really was. And we, we, you know, They used to do, do crazy things to get the rain to come, and we figured out there's no rain god. That's not real. That's just clouds and precipitation and water and moisture. And, you know, we, we figured a lot of things out that these ancient people did not understand, but what we've done is, is that we've taken the same, the same idols that they served— There was an idol behind them all. And although they have a different name today, we still serve the exact same idols. And in week two, we kind of looked at the idea that many of us, we serve the idol of of romance and love and relationship. And we believe that if we could just have that relationship, then we would be satisfied. And last week, we looked at how money drives so many people. We think, if I could just have those things, those material possessions, then I would be satisfied. And that, in essence, is the definition of an idol. An idol is the thing that you believe so deeply in your heart that if you just had that thing, it would make life complete. That if you, if you already have it, if you ever lost that thing, it would make life not worth living. It's the thing that you make the ultimate thing. And guess what? We've looked at things that are actually good things. I mean, how many of the Bible says marriage is a good thing? There's nothing wrong with marriage. Marriage, as a matter of fact, it's, it's fantastic. When you do it God's way, it's amazing. But see, the problem is is when you make a good relationship the ultimate satisfaction of your life, you've got a scarecrow in your melon patch. See, money's not a bad thing. Money's money's not morally one way or the other. It's amoral. It's just a thing. It should be a tool that we use to to resource the kingdom of God. But see, when you make money the ultimate thing, you've got a scarecrow in your melon patch. And today, as we kind of wrap this series up, we will look at this, this kind of one final idol. There's a bunch of them. But y'all can only handle me preaching on idolatry for a few weeks. And so today we'll look at, like I said, the final idol in this series. And I think out of these three idols that, that many of us fall into this trap. And I think if you look at certain ones, maybe women tend to lean a little bit harder one way and men will tend to lean a little harder another way. But these three idols that we've looked at over these few weeks, we all at some point in our time deal with and struggle with. And this is what we all want. We want that idol to validate us. We want that idol to make us feel whole, to make us feel worthy, to make us feel something that we can't get. And here's the problem with idols, and here's what you're going to see today, just like we've seen every week, is that idols, they promise so much, and yet they deliver so little. Let's pray as we begin today. Father, we pray, God, as we get into this story, into this narrative, into these scriptures, that, Lord God, your truth would come out. God, you said that in your word that, God, when we found your truth, that your truth would set us free. God, I pray we'd be free today. I pray that free people walk out of this place. Free men, free women, free husbands, free wives, free moms and dads, free people, Lord God. I pray that we would walk out of this place free from the idols of our heart, Lord God. That is our prayer today in Jesus' name. And we all said... Amen. Hey, so here's the deal. We're going to look into a fascinating story, and the more that I read this story, the more glaringly obviously it became. Hey, the more brilliant the story became, the more I saw the story as a perfect parable and a perfect setup that probably only God could divinely orchestrate and work together. And so if you have your Bible, go to the book of 2 Kings chapter 5, and if you don't have your Bible or your iPad... Follow with me on the screen, because today we are going to see how one man struggled with an idol that, like I said, at some point in our time, I think most of us deal with. Here we go. The Bible says, 2 Kings 5, verse 1, the Bible says, now Naaman. Everybody say Naman. Naaman. Naaman will be the feature character of the story. The Bible says Naaman was a commander of the army. Of the king of Aram. This is basically modern day Syria, it's just north of Israel. He was a great man in the sight of his master. He was highly regarded because through him the Lord had given victory to Aram. He was a, a valiant soldier. How many know, like the setup is really good here, isn't it? I mean, this guy is basically painting the picture of awesome. He's dudely, manly. He's a commander of the army. He's a great man. He's highly regarded. He's a valiant soldier. This guy has status, achievement, accolade, wealth, power. And then there's this little verse right here. But he had leprosy. Now, leprosy is is that we know in our modern era and this era are a little bit different. Leprosy in their day meant any type of like... destroying disease. And at its worst, depending on how bad it was, it was a disease that would literally eat away your body until you just die. I mean, literally fingers and limbs would eventually fall off and your body would corrode itself. And so here you have a guy who's got incredible achievement, incredible status, incredible power. But see, you got this one thing. You got leprosy. Like you're going to die soon. Something's not all right, which is proof. And what you'll see here is that he's in desperate need of a healing. He's in desperate need of the miraculous. He needs something to save his life. And what he's discovered is, is that his wealth, his power, and his fame can't quite do it. Because as you and I discovered through, through life and through this series, is that some of us, we want relationships so bad, but there's certain things that only God can do for you. There's some of us that we want money so badly, and we think if we just had, and it's the longing of our soul, and we just salivate into the mouth of wanting those things, but then we realize there's some things only God can do. So listen how the story unfolds. This man had leprosy. Now, bands of raiders, verse 2, from Aram had gone out and taken captive a young girl from Israel, and she served Naaman's wife. So she said to her mistress one day, If only my master would see the prophet who is in Samaria, he could cure him of his leprosy. So Naaman went to his master, the king, and told him what the girl from Israel had said. By all means go, said the king of Aram. I will send a letter to the king of Israel. So Naaman left, taking with him ten talents of silver, six thousand shekels of gold, ten sets of clothing, The letter that he took to the king of Israel read like this. With this letter, I'm sending my servant Naaman to you so that you may cure him of leprosy. Now, here's what you need to recognize is that Naaman worked inside of a power structure. See, when you have wealth and you have status and you have power, you know how to work within a power structure, don't you? Like, you know how to get stuff done. And the way that you get things done in the world is this, is you go with all your money, all your power, all your influence, all your recommendations, and you can weave life the direction that you want it to go. You can get things done. You know how to call that board member, that council member. You know how to get the mayor on the phone. You know how to get through that. You can get things done because the amount of influence and power that you've amassed, here's the problem. Even then, there's certain things that only God can do. See, you can have all the money and the power in the world until you get that doctor's report that you're gonna die in six months. Then what do you got? All the insurance in the world and all the money in the world can't save you because there's certain things that only God can do. See, there's, I talked to a man this week, and we were talking, and he asked me about the message, and we, we, we started to talk about it. He said, Pastor, that makes so much sense. He began to describe for me a time in his life where he was wooed away from the company he'd been at for years. And he said, they, they, they wooed me. They said, name your number. They said, do you want a signing bonus? What car do you want? We'll go get it right now. And he said, and they wooed me, and I was just caught up in it. And I thought, how awesome would it be? My salary would be almost double. They were going to give me a huge signing bonus, whatever car I wanted to drive. And he said, I got caught up in it. And, I, and he said, guess what? I was so good at justifying why it was such a good idea. And he said, then I took it, and I realized what I had done. And he goes, I literally got depressed, and I couldn't sleep, and I couldn't, couldn't do it. It, was like it took every bit of my family to get me out of bed in the morning. And he said, you know what I realized? It didn't matter how much money I made, you can't buy peace of mind. There's certain things only God can give you. It's just the way that it is. But see, Naaman, Naaman worked inside of a power structure. structure and success was his idol. Because see, if I keep on achieving more, and I keep on accomplishing more, and I keep on doing more, and fulfilling I, that's what validates me. Have you ever been there in life? You ever, here's how I know it. Because, see, I recognize as a pastor a couple years ago, I, I, I was a youth pastor for years. And every time I took over a youth group, it exploded. Not literally. Okay, it, it, I said that so emphatically, I felt like, let me, let me, like I took over a youth group. When I was in Michigan, I was 20 years old. And, and, and by the time I left, it was like 250 kids. The church is only about three or 400 people. And there was this church in, in, in San Jose, and I took over the youth group, and it was a struggling little youth group. I remember the, the, the first time I ever went, it was like 30 kids there one night. By the time I left, we're, we're, we're pushing 1,000 kids in the youth group. And so, like, I, I, you know, just this incredible achievement and accomplishment, and people called me, and people asked me to come speak at conferences, and all this, and, and I just was like, yeah, 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 it's all for the kingdom. Yeah, yeah, yeah. All for the glory. You know, it was just, and, and it was good. It was all kingdom work. And I thought, I'm doing good things. This is kingdom. I mean, like, I'm doing these things for God. And then it dawned on me after, after taking over this church, I had these false assumptions that everything I touched should just turn to gold. And all of a sudden, just magically, uh, su- outward, these outward successful signs should just appear. And all of a sudden, when things didn't go the way that I thought they'd go, and they didn't turn the way that I thought they would turn, I began to question myself. I begin to question, like, well, you know, are you really supposed to be a pastor? Are you really supposed to be, what what about this and what about that? And maybe you're just not, and you know what dawned on me? God didn't validate me. I validated me because of what I had accomplished or what I had perceived that I had accomplished. And see, this is how you know that you have an idol of success. Here, Here, I'll give you some ideas. Sign number one that you have an idol of success, is that you end up with a false sense of security in life. You just do. See, successful people, people of high echelon and high accolade and high accomplishment in life, they go through life expecting that everything should work out and that their achievement will somehow keep them safe. This is why when I counsel with people, when I counsel with incredibly well-off, well-to-do, high-achievement people, they are shocked when tragedy hits their life. They say things like, I just never thought this would happen. It just wasn't supposed to go this way. This is not the way that it was supposed to be. When I talk to people who come from, from lowly backgrounds and mediocre accomplishments, they don't ever say things like that. They just recognize sometimes life happens. Sometimes things don't turn out. But see, when you have an a idol of success, you think everything should turn out exactly the way that you want it to, and your world crashes. When it doesn't, it's because you have a false sense of security. See, you thought you were safe because of what you had done. You thought you could accumulate enough wealth, enough influence, enough power, enough achievement that that would keep you safe. And if your world hasn't crashed yet, just hold on. And then when it does, that idol will have fallen down. You will have two options. You can either prop it back up again and try again, or you can turn to the one true living God because there's some things that only he can do. Number two is this, if you think you might have a sign or an idol of success, sign number two is this, is you have a distorted view of yourself. So you, you, you think you're great. You, you think you did all that stuff. You think you accomplished all those things, and yet you forgot that it was God who placed you in the exact time, in the exact town, with the exact family, with the exact circumstances, that gave you breath in your lungs, that gave you a physical body that was able to do and to go. So you think you you think that was talent that you completely did on your own. You know, you were born with that talent. You were born with that mind. You were born with that physical capability. You, you, you didn't, it, 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 it's, it's like the old Texas saying, if you see a turtle on a fence post, don't ever assume that he got there by himself. That's you. At whatever success you think you achieved, just, just you need to recognize that you didn't get there all on your own. That it, behind the scenes, it was God orchestrating it all. But see, when you have an idol of success, you, you, you think it was you. You think you worked that hard. I'm that smart. And don't get me wrong... You did do some. You did play a role. This is the element of faithfulness that truly God does reward and honor. But the foundation of your success, it didn't start with you. It won't end with you. And if you think it's all about you, there's a scripture you might want to read that talks about how God lifts up the humble but actually rejects the proud. Sign number three that you might have an idol of success is that you cannot maintain your self-confidence in life unless you remain at the top. You ever had your confidence shaken? You ever had a failure at work, a failure at life, a failure at parenting and all of a sudden you just didn't feel validated anymore? Like you felt like I'm not worthy anymore, I'm not good enough anymore, I guess I don't really measure up and all of a sudden you felt empty and broken on the inside, you had an idol of success. And you kept propping that thing up inside of you thinking that that was what made you who you were. Listen to these words from a famous pop star. I have an iron will. And all of my life, or, and all of my will has always been to conquer some horrible feeling of inadequacy. I push past one spell of it and discover myself as a special human being. And then I get to another stage and I think, I'm mediocre and uninteresting. Again and again, my drive in life is from this horrible fear of being mediocre. And that's always pushing me, pushing me because even though I've become somebody, I still have to prove that I'm somebody. My struggle has never ended, and it probably never will. Madonna said that. You can have all the accomplishment in the world, you can have all the accolades, you can have all the different trophies and all the different awards on your mantle, and still there's something gnawing away on the inside of you, because some things only God can give you. So Naaman, When you look at what he does, he works within a power structure, doesn't he? So when you work inside of a power structure, look at what he does. This is what you gotta see. Number one, he brings a big payout. Because that's how the power structure works. You can buy people off if they are people within a power structure, right? You just gotta give enough, you gotta gotta make a big enough donation. You gotta give a big enough payout, you gotta give enough money under the table. That's what he does. Number two is he brought a letter of recommendation from the king, the highest possible source he could get. Then he went to the top man in Israel, the king of Israel himself. Because because, because this is how you work in a power structure. This is how you get things done, right? I'm, I'm just talking about the way the world systems work, right? Isn't that how you get stuff done? But listen how the king of Israel responds. Listen to this. Verse number seven. As soon as the king of Israel read the letter... He tore his robes, that's a bad sign by the way, and said, am I God? Can I kill and bring back to life? Why does this fellow send someone to me to be cured of his leprosy? See how is, he is trying to pick a quarrel with me. Literally, th- okay, you know what the king of Israel knew? God doesn't work in your power structure. God doesn't work in your power system. I can't, you you can't go buy a miracle. You can't go pay off God. By the way, do you know how kooky Elisha is anyway? I can't control him. I can't make him do anything. You gotta remember, these prophets would sometimes command God to give a drought to its own nation so they would repent. Turn Like, they couldn't control the prophets. They couldn't make the prophet give a miracle away. And so he's literally thinking, like, he must be doing this to, like, set a trap. He must want to fight. He must want to go to war. That's... Do you know what he knew that that, that Naaman didn't know? You can't buy God off. God doesn't work in your power structure, does he? Like, in any type of religion outside of Christianity, what you typically find is this, is if you do good, God will like you and then reward you. That's not how our God works. God rewards faithfulness, but like, it's not like if you do good, God will like you, then you get to heaven, as a matter of fact, we, we, we don't work inside of a power structure. We work inside of a grace structure. And the grace structure says, I already like you. I already died for you. I already paid All you have to do is accept the free gift of salvation. Because I don't owe you anything. As a matter of fact, now you've become a debtor of grace. God never owes you anything, does he? He's already given you everything. And see, these people thought, well, hey, this is how the gods work. The way that God's work is, is if we make enough sacrifices and give enough money and do enough things, then then our gods owe us. And see, they already believe that God blessed the good ones. That's why if you were poor, God didn't like you. And if you were rich, God must really like you because that's how you work inside of a power structure. You see, God doesn't operate like that, does he? God doesn't just go, because you did, I... God's not on a leash. God can't be paid off. God can't be bought off. He is the debtor of no one. And because of how radical he is in his love towards us, we all have become the debtors of grace, whether we even know it or not. So the king of Israel cries out and says, Am I God? Can I kill? Can I bring bring to life? He was getting at the issue that Naaman had, that Naaman had made success an idol. He expected that on the basis of his achievement that he could get God to do something for him because that's the structure that he worked in. Verse number eight, let's keep reading. The Bible says, when Elisha, the man of God, heard that the king of Israel had torn his robes, he sent him this message. Why'd you tear your clothes? You need to put some clothes on. Have, have the man come to me and then he will know that there is a prophet in Israel. Basically, Elisha the prophet hears the story. Somehow, the rumor mill wind gets back to him. Somebody delivers a message, and he's like, oh, okay, so there's this commander. The king sends a letter. Our king's freaking out. Yeah, yeah, just tell him to come see me. So Naaman went with his horses and his chariots. Do you see how the language builds it? In every moment, Naaman is great. Naaman is a commander. Naaman is a a valiant. Naaman's great. Naaman has the king influence. Now Naaman has brought money. He has brought clothes. He has brought shekels of gold and silver and all. And then he comes with what? His chariots and his horses. Because all my power has got to mean something, surely. So then, Elisha, as rude as he might be, does not even go and talk to him. In verse 10, the Bible says that Elisha won't even go outside. He actually sends a messenger to say to him, go wash yourself seven times in the Jordan and your flesh will be restored and you will be cleansed. But Naaman went away angry and said, I thought that he would surely come out to me. He was clearly dishonored and disrespected. Do you know, do you know who I am? Do you know what I've achieved? Don't you know what I've accomplished? Do you know who you're talking to? So he was angry. I thought surely that he would come out to me and stand and call on the name of the Lord his God, wave his hand over the spot and cure me of my leprosy. Are not Abana and Farpar, the rivers of Damascus, better than all the rivers of Israel? Basically, if you don't know this, Jordan is a dirty river. Could not wash in them and be cleansed? And so he turned and went off in rage. Do you see what Elisha has done? Elisha has flipped his power structure upside down. As a matter of fact, by the end of the story, he does get healed, and he tries to give Elisha all the money, and Elisha says, your money's no good here. You see, there are certain things that only God can do. And so he takes the power structure and says, your chariots, they don't matter. Your money, it doesn't matter. Your letter of recommendation, it doesn't matter. As a matter of fact, here's what I want you I'm not even going to come talk to you. I'm going to send a servant to come talk to you, and I want you to go wash in the dirty river. Do You see? how he's flipped the power the power means nothing now the power structure has fallen apart and he gets angry because he believes in his mind that 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 surely this guy is going to demand that i do something what great that i achieve something great that i accomplish something great that i have to go and do something great and if i go do something great surely the god of israel will recognize me Elisha says let's go wash in the dirty river and he's mad about it. Let's keep reading. The Bible says in verse 13, Naaman's servants went to him and said, My father, if the prophet had told you to do some great thing, wouldn't you have gone and done it? How much more than when he tells you, Wash and be cleansed? See, Naaman's problem was this. is He thought in his mind, Well, any idiot can go wash in the river. A child, a woman, anybody of lower class and lower society can go wash in a river. That's not how God works. Surely it can't be that way. And guess who, guess who is in the backdrop of it all? Notice that it's his servants that go to him and basically talk him into going to the river. Wasn't it his servants that did it? Who was it that came to the door that gave him the news anyway? It was the servants. Because God doesn't work inside of your power structure. As a matter of fact, the Bible says that God uses the weaker things of the world to confound the powerful And sometimes the foolish things of this world to confound the wise. As a matter of fact, you know who the the real hero of the story is? You, You probably missed it. Back in about the third verse of the story, the Bible says that there was a young servant girl who is the servant of Naaman's wife. As a matter of fact, you know the fascinating part of it? The Bible said that she was Naaman's servant because her family had been raided by a band of Syrians, which means... At best, her whole family has been put into slavery, or at worst, they're all dead. Now think about this. If anybody had some probably hatred or bitterness or vitriol, couldn't it have been the servant girl? But when you listen to her words back at the beginning of the story, she says, if my master could only go see the prophet in Israel. Here's what's amazing. The entire story is actually triggered and put together by a servant girl who gets Really one verse of recognition whose life had been destroyed. That's where the power comes from. Think about this. If it, look, if it were me, I wouldn't tell him about the prophet in Israel. I'd be counting the fingers as they fall off his hand. I'd be like, number three, booya, sucker. That's what you get for killing my family, punk. Anyway, you and I would be angry. We would be bitter. We would be mad. We would be delightful at his demise. We would be excited at at the thought of him corroding to death. See, here's what's amazing. This is the proof of the the grace structure. Think about the whole thing is triggered by her grace towards him. Did he deserve it? Maybe not. Probably not. Not necessarily at all. If anyone had the ability to hold on to the grace and to hold on, it was her See, this is proof that that grace costs something great. Forgiveness costs something great. Never think forgiveness is free. Forgiveness always costs somebody something. This is why in the Old Testament, whenever they they went to God for forgiveness, they brought a sacrifice, because they recognized forgiveness always costs somebody something. And see, we know this because we know that like, look, let me give you an example. If, If I come over to your house, and I let my kids run buck wild. And they start breaking your nicest stuff and your favorite stuff. Now, you love me and I'm your pastor. So you're gonna forgive me. At least to my face. But if you forgive me, let's say I offer to pay. Hey, look, I'm so sorry. Caitlin's crazy. I'll pay for that. And you say, no, no, no. It's okay, pastor. All those sermons on Sunday morning, they've already already paid the payment, you know. I'm clearly stretching a little bit here. Let me ask you a question: I didn't pay, so then who's going to pay for it? You are. Somebody's got to pay. Either I'm going to pay because you're going to make me pay, or you're going to pay because you forgave me and extended grace. All forgiveness costs somebody something. Why do you think Jesus had to die on the cross? Because all forgiveness costs somebody something. And God didn't make you pay, and God didn't make me pay. He absorbed the cost himself. Because God doesn't owe anybody anything. Rather, because of his goodness and kindness and love and mercy, we are all now debtors to his grace. When you think about what, what took place in this story, this story literally turns on its head by the servants of the story. It starts with the servant girl who instead of uh, you know, extending judgment, extended grace. It followed by the servant of Elisha. It was followed then by Naaman's own servants that talk him into going to wash in the river. The Bible says that he goes and washes in the river and indeed is healed. When he goes back, he says, hey, I want to give you all the shekels of gold and silver and the clothes and all that. And he goes, no, you know, this is not a power structure. You can't buy God off. He's not on a leash. He doesn't work that way. You can't do enough to get God to like you. He already likes you. That's why it's called grace. When you look at the story of salvation, it doesn't work within a power structure of accomplishment and achievement. You can never do enough to get God to love you. He already loves you. Think about it like this. When you think about Jesus' salvation and how he accomplished salvation, it was not by strength, but it was what? It was surrender. It was not by power. It was by service. It was not by his own success, but it was rather by his sacrifice. It was not in his achievement, but it was actually achieved in his death. It's a grace structure. You see it? No amount of success will ever fill the vacuum of your soul. No amount of accomplishment as a parent, as a business person, as a student, none of it will ever fill the vacuum of your soul. There are certain things that only God can do. And God doesn't work in the power system where if you be good enough, and you do good enough, and you achieve enough, then you'll have him on the leash he doesn't get on any leashes. He doesn't owe anybody. But because of his kindness, we are debtors to his grace now. And we don't serve from the standpoint of we owe. He says, you've already been forgiven. We serve from the standpoint of being in awe by how amazing his kindness has been towards us. Last thought, and I'll close with this. In, in the movie Chariots of Fire, which was a movie from, gosh, I think it was 1981. Chariots, remember, dun, 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 dun. It was one of the few songs I could still play on the piano from like four years of piano lessons. That's sad. <laughs> "Cherry Sapphire" was a movie uh, produced back in 1981 but it was about the story of Eric Little and he was a Scottish runner who, who competed in the 1924 Olympics in France. And basically, the, the culmination of the story was this, is that he also competed against another, another fellow runner, and they competed against each other. And, 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 and basically, Eric Little was a Christian man who was born of Christian missionaries in China. And he was actually, as soon as the Olympics were over, going to go back to China to go and finish being a missionary and finish his life there. But during these Olympic Games, they actually host his race on a Sunday. And so because it's on a Sunday, he doesn't want to dishonor God in any way, and so he decides, I'm not going to run. And he ends up trading his spot with another runner. And in it, he has this amazing quote at the end of the movie, and he says this. He says, I believe God made me for a purpose, but he has also made me fast, and when I run, I feel his pleasure. Does anybody remember that line? I believe God has made me for a purpose, but he's also made me fast, and when I run, I feel his pleasure an amazing thought to think that now I don't achieve so that God will approve me. God has already approved me, and now I get to achieve for his pleasure and for his glory. The other gentleman was an, a man named Harold Abraham, who did not know God or have God in his life. He said these words in the final thoughts towards his race. He said, and now In one hour's time, I will be out there again. I will raise my eyes and look down that corridor. It's only four feet wide and with 10 lonely seconds to justify my whole existence. But will I? You see, two men... One of them had built his whole life on, based on what he could accomplish, and if he just accomplished it, he would prove his entire worth. But even in that moment, he doubted himself. And you had another man who ran, not for the need of approval, not for the need of success, not for the need of accomplishment, but he said, I run because God made me fast, and when I run, I feel his pleasure. Instead of running on that Sunday, he actually preached in a church that Sunday morning instead. See, one man felt like he had to accomplish something great to validate his own existence. One of them realized his existence had already been validated by the most ultimate sacrifice of Jesus' death on the cross, and from that standpoint, he was a debtor of grace who could then run, not because he needed to prove something, but just for God's pleasure. See, today you have to ask yourself, do I ever pursue stuff to make me feel whole inside? Do I need relationships to make me feel whole inside? Do I need some level of accomplishment or achievement to make me feel whole inside? Because if you do, you have a scarecrow in your melon patch. And I'm telling you that you're already loved. I'm telling you that God's already your provider. I'm telling you that you are already validated in him. But see, if you don't know that, and you haven't accepted and received and seen God's grace and truth and mercy operating in your life, then you keep grasping at the air, trying to think, if I could just have that, if I could have one more of those, if I could have some more of that, then I would feel whole and worthwhile on the inside. And the problem with idols, they promise so much and they deliver so little. There are certain things only God can give you. Let's pray this morning. God, we are all human beings that are a bit broken on the inside. We are all a bit lost, needing to be found. We are all a little bit sick on the inside, needing to be healed. God, we are all, at times in our life, chasing after the wind, pursuing idols, pursuing things that, that they're just gonna fall over, and then we prop them back up, and then they fall over, and our world crashes, and we prop them back up again, and the longing of our soul, God, will never fully be satisfied until we find you. And God, that's our declaration today. It's in you. Jesus, it's always you, and it's only you. Everything else is a masquerade, everything else is a cheap knockoff, everything else is an imitation, everything else leaves us wanting inside. So God, we turn to you in our hearts today, God, and we pray that, Lord God, that you would expose any idols in our heart. God, we, we just covered a few over these last few weeks, but God, if, if, if we have greed in our heart, Lord God, help us. God, if, we, if we've pursued the idols of love and romance, God, free us, God. God, if we've made achievement and accomplishment the thing that makes us feel worthwhile, God, forgive us, humble us. the only thing you need to come to Jesus is need itself. Did you know that? That's the only thing you need to bring to Jesus is need. The idea that you recognize, I am broken, and I need you. Something's not right, and I need you. I'm lost, and I need you. So Father, we pray for every person within the sound of my voice, God, that their heart would be open to you, Lord God. Turn towards you. As a matter of fact, if you're in this place and you say, Todd, that's me today. I've been looking in all the wrong places. I've been chasing down all the wrong avenues. But today I know that I need, and it is only you. If you're in this place and you say, God, I need you in my life. God, I need your help. I need your healing. I need your forgiveness. I need it. God, I need it. Whatever it is that's in you, I need it. And if you're in here today and you say, that's me, then on the count of three, I just want you to slip your hand up in the air, just between you and God. Say, God, I need you today. One, two, three. Three, and slip your hand up in the air. Yeah, God, I need you. God, I need you. I've been chasing down. I've been pursuing. I've been looking. But I am lost without you, God. Everybody do me a favor. We're going to pray a prayer together as, as a collective, as a group. And I want you to repeat this prayer after me as I lead you in it. Just say it out loud. Mean it from the bottom of your heart. There's nothing magical about this prayer. It's just about you connecting with your heavenly Father. Everybody say this. Everybody say, Dear God, help me. Heal me. I need you. I am lost without you. Help me, Lord, to know you and to follow you. God, I ask that you would forgive me of all my sin. There's been an idol in my heart. I need you, God. I thank you that you sent your son. He died for me and he rose again so that I might have life. I thank you, God, that you are all I need. It is in your name that I pray. And we all said, Amen.